One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. I want to start with Newsfeed News. From Monday, this feed will become Tortoise News. You'll be able to get this podcast, of course, every Monday and Friday, but you'll also be able to listen to our other news podcasts all in one place. I'll tell you more about it at the end of this episode. It's the week ending Friday, the 1st of December. From Tortoise, welcome to the news meeting. The former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger has died at the age of 100. The former Chancellor and veteran Labour politician Alistair Darling has died at the age of 70. The Irish singer-songwriter Shane McGowan has died at the age of 65. Israel has notified the families of more hostages due to be freed by Hamas later after extending the temporary truce in Gaza by another day. Toxic culture at the centre. Anything that went wrong was seen as an almost intentional failure. You don't want them to advertise? No. What do you mean? If somebody's going to try to blackmail me with advertising, blackmail me with money, go f*** yourself. I'm joined by Tortoise's news editor, Jess Winch. Hello. It's been a strange, bitty week, really. It's been fun. (laughs) And by climate editor, Jeevan Vasagar, who's here just before heading off to COP next week to Dubai. Is that right? That's right, yeah. Hi, James. And I'm delighted that we're also joined by Linda Yu. Linda and I used to work together at the BBC. She's an economist, a broadcaster, and also the author of The Great Crashes. Linda, welcome. Thank you, James. Funny thing about Great Crashes, because, of course, we just heard Alistair Darling has died. You knew him, didn't you? And he was the Chancellor at the time of the financial crisis. And if I remember correctly, he gave an interview in which he said that the financial crisis would be the worst since the Depression. And people thought that it was a gaffe, that he had misspoken. He was right, wasn't he? Yeah, he turned out to be absolutely right. Um, I mean, I remember, um, you know, when he was Chancellor, obviously, um, he played an instrumental role. I remember having breakfast, um, you know, with him uh, in Downing Street. And, And I think the amount of, I think, the amount of surprise um, hit a lot of people when it came to the financial crisis. But I think he read it correctly at a time when a lot of people were trying to work out, you know, what is this? Is it really going to be that bad? And in my book, I write about how he's actually quite instrumental because having recognized that, he and Gordon Brown really focused on how do you recapitalize as and put more money into the banks? So, you know, everybody's talking about how do you rescue banks? What's the best way to do it? Do you, I don't know, you know, take some assets, put it into a toxic asset fund like Ireland was doing, just give them liquidity, you know, as in short-term cash. And he, um, you know, leading um, the 
efforts here recap, you know, recapitalized um, the banks, and they ended up with ownership, of course, of you know uh, RBS now now known as that West and Lloyd's. And he actually was so influential; he influenced the Americans who changed their plan, which is called TARP, which was originally going to be liquidity-driven and became a recapitalization plan. And so I think his influence must be uh, must have been considerable. Oh, and also, by the way, James, the thing that um, he um, he also wouldn't allow. Remember, Lehman Brothers was yes. for was for sale at the time, and the only suitor left was Barclays, and he would not allow Barclays to buy Lehman Brothers without a suitable guarantee from the U.S. government. Okay, let's tuck into where we are right now. Um, the stories that should lead the news this week, Linda. This is um, the kind of leverage on the news that uh, neither you nor I ever quite got at the BBC, which is trying to figure out who leads the news, which story leads the news. Um, long story short, Jeevan, you go first. Uh, the death of Henry Kissinger. Interesting, Jess. Let the chips fall. Elon Musk's X-rated attack on the advertisers. <laughs> oh, good one, um, Linda. Uh, the chances of a financial accident that should be discussed at COP28. All right. Well, okay, that's a brilliant run because all of them could lead. Um, let's start, even if I might, with Henry Kissinger. The news is that Henry Kissinger has died. And I guess this raises a kind of couple of questions for us as journalists. One of them is, it's a little bit strange, isn't it? When someone dies, we take that as an opportunity to assess their lives, to speak ill of them, they may not have been active in public life for, for decades, really, as, as Kissinger hasn't been. I mean, he left politics in the 1970s. So, so why are we doing this, I guess, is one question. Um, another is kind of whether we do this uh, as a kind of balance sheet or whether we take a view, you know, whether we have one of those sort of New York Times headlines with three commas and a semicolon <laughs> in it um, or not, or whether we say, you know, who was he? And I, th- I think the third question for us is um, what impact did he have on the world? And do we think that uh, the impact they had on the world, firstly, you know, was it for good or for ill? And secondly, to what extent did he shape it? To what extent was it was he an influence? So let's deal with those each in turn. Man of a hundred dies. I think, I think there is an oddness to it. I think the reason why it's an appropriate moment to take stock is because there's no epilogue. It's because there's no chance of a third act. There's no chance of surprises. This is the only point at which the news can say, "This is this is what we think of him." And I think this, for also for us, journalism has to suspend the rule of not speaking ill of the dead. I think we have to be frank about about who they, who they were. So that's the second and some the most interesting question, which is, is it a balanced, controversial statesman dies, or is it former US Secretary of State dies, or is it war criminal, Nobel Peace Prize winner dies? How, how do you handle the Kissinger judgment, if you like that headline? The way that I would handle it, and I know I'm not saying, I'm not necessarily saying that's the, the best or the only way, is that you take them in, in two parts. And I think the first part is to talk about the morality of this. Uh, and that is to say, he was clearly a man who said and did unpleasant things, and unpleasant is putting it mildly. Uh, he picked the wrong side of a genocide in Bangladesh, the wrong side of an appalling war in East Timor. Uh, said and did extraordinary things, unpalatable things in Chile. Uh, So there are clearly kind of some very bad things that he did. But we should also think about the geopolitics of this separately and understand what he did in the world separately from the moral point. I think there is a connection between the two. And I think the point here that I think is really interesting about him is that he's he's someone who saw the world in terms of pure power. And there's an, there's an argument for that. There's an argument that says uh, America can be very two-faced, can be, you know, can talk about ideals and then do unpalatable things. Whereas he's someone who just said, 
we're about the, the exercise of force, the exercise of power in the pursuit of our objectives. The interesting thing that, that I think undermined what he did is that missing morality, not having human rights as part of your foreign policy, means you miss politics from below, means you see it always from above, sometimes from above, you know, from the belly hatch of the plane from which you're raining those bombs on Cambodia. But you, you don't understand what people are doing, thinking on the ground. You think of it purely in terms of great men. Well, and Jess and Linda, I'll come to you in a second, but just oh, Henry Kissinger, what do I need to know? Who was he? What did he do? I think that if I was having this conversation with my 17-year-old son, for whom, you know, this is a blank sheet, I'd say that he was the architect of American foreign policy during the Cold War. And I'd say probably the three critical things to know about him are he engineered the rapprochement between the US and China, which was a really important event in the Cold War, peeled the Chinese away from the Soviets, that he was dedicated to opposing communism, and that led him into very strange places. And I think thirdly, uh, that he did terrible things, often uh, in countries that he felt were, were just pawns. And it's interesting that the countries that I mentioned, uh, Cambodia, Bangladesh, Indonesia, these aren't places that we think about very often. And they're places that sort of end up as uh, a sort of roadkill in, in the Cold War. Jess, where do you land on Henry Kissinger and, if you like, Jeevan's stock take? I think... The reason that his death has been so widely reported and so widely covered is that we are all living in a world he created. I think that's why he matters. Like him or loathe him, he may have stopped his political career in the 1970s, but he advised 12 presidents. He was still very active in terms of the, the speeches that he made, the visits that he did. He went to China this summer and was what you know they rolled out the red carpet for him and. I think the White House noted at the time that it was a shame that he could get a sit down with these high level officials in China. And at the time, senior state officials could not because of the relationship. So he wielded an influence that I think remains undeniable, um, I think. But it's an incredibly important um, element of the story is to make very clear that this, this was wielded in different ways. What do you think, Linda? Uh, yeah, I agree with that. I think um, he is the architect of quite a lot of what we would describe as real politic. And so this is the um, the exercise of power. And it's not a fully fleshed out kind of, you know, values-based foreign policy, for instance. Um, Kissinger himself um, suffered horribly as a child. He was a German emigre. He was Jewish. He left. His family left. Um, he endured a very, very terrible childhood, which I think shaped his views of power and influence and um, you know, so I think that, I think um, seeing him having fled Nazi Germany in the 1930s, gone to the United States with his family, he became the first non-American uh, foreign secretary um, mm -hmm. for the United States. And uh, if you hear him speak, he you know retained his German <laughs> accent. <laughs> there was a nice detail where he retained his accent, but his brother Walter lost his and sounded like an American. And his brother was asked, why? How is it that you've lost your accent? He said, because I'm the Kissinger who listens. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. I mean, I like, Jeevan, your point, which is this was a statesman, a secretary of state who, and a national security advisor who conceived the world in terms of power. And what you miss there is if you don't also plug in human rights you find yourself making fundamental mistakes at a huge cost in human life. But just to make the case for him, because it's so easy to crowd in the Cambodia-Indonesia 
uh, Bangladesh and also, by the way, the, the whole set of African examples that tend to get forgotten, those pawns in the Cold War. It seems to me that the case for Kissinger is that both in power and in the years afterwards, he kept on making a case for engagement with the United States' rivals. That curiously, he'd learned from history, 19th century history in particular, it shaped the way in which he thought of post-war US history. But the Cold War also shaped the way in which he thought particularly about engaging with both Beijing and Moscow. And you miss a Kissinger these days who has a worldview and one that is about engagement rather than, you know, essentially everyone taking to their trenches. Is that a fair account of his post-office life? I love the element of you that is an editor who instinctively says, in defense of Kissinger, yeah. <laughs> 700 words by five o'clock. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, I think the point about cooperation is a really interesting and important one. And that is a really kind of critical thread in Kissinger. So I, I mentioned China, but he actually cooperated with the, with the Soviets as well on, on nuclear talks. Um, I'm not sure that I'd say that's missing in the world today. So I think if you, I mean, COP um, has just opened this week in Dubai. And if you look at what happened just before it, the US and China are talking about climate, which is really critical. The US and China have shared interests on the Middle East in, in terms of energy security. So I think there are still those conversations going on. I, I don't know. I, I'm not sure, really, because I feel that there's an element of what you're saying that kind of leads us back to the balance sheet that says, well, yes, there were those Cambodians, but then there's also the nuclear weapons. So, you know, there's a semicolon in the middle and we can make this work. I, I just think there's something, you know, just to Lynn's point, there's something very human about Kissinger, as well as his kind of huge intellect and also his record at partying. There's a person that sits in between that, that looked at cultures and societies as well as statesmen. I mean, I remember I interviewed him a couple of times. And I remember once talking about Russia when this was not early Putin, but I would say mid-Putin. And he was very keen to say, look, we have to think distinctly about Putin versus the Russian people, a culture that is much closer to the culture he'd grown up in Germany, the culture of Western Europe. And likewise, I suspect he would be able to distinguish between Xi Jinping and China as a you know strategic competitor, but partner to the United States. It felt to me as though there was quite a lot of complexity in the way in which he thought he, he, he liked that. I think that's interesting. I mean, I think I think the question for me as a journalist is whether he mattered in the world. The answer is yes. Um, I think the sort of the sort of more complex question of whether he was a force for good or bad. I think that's one to wrestle with, and that's what what makes this story interesting. Isn't he both? Isn't that the point? You can't put but him into one or the other. But the point is the right one, isn't it? Which is, do you do the New York Times? <laughs> Sem, you know, what was it? Semicolons and commas? I Three mean, commas and a semicolon. Perfect. The <laughs> ideal headline. Or do you come out one side or the other? I'm really uncomfortable with the one side or the other. But there's a waiting, isn't there? There is. And I think this is why we will be revisiting, I think, his legacy. Because remember, there was quite a lot. And actually, the thing that always, always makes me think um, where um, Kissinger's life, you know, he left public office at the age of 55, and then he was relevant for another 45 years. There's hope for us all, really. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. That's true. And he was really there. I mean, I think his hearing had gone this summer, but he came over to London. He went to China and then he came to the UK for his 100th birthday. And, of course, the extraordinary thing was the people sitting next to him at the dinner, 
he really couldn't clock what they were saying. At that point, he really couldn't hear as well as he didn't listen. But when he gave up and gave, stood up and gave his speech, it was absolutely uh, fluent. When I say that he was a person who liked to party, there's all the stories about his love life, which is a whole other book. But I, the last time I ran into him was in the lobby of the Hay Adams Hotel, which is opposite the White House in Washington. And I was sort of being a little too fawning and saying, Secretary Kissinger, would you be able to do an interview? And I think it was about the situation in Syria. And he was walking out with a tote bag to get in a car. And he said, I'm just on my way to the airport to go to the Bahamas. And I had this image of this really by then rather elderly man uh, taking a swim in the uh, Caribbean seas. I said, well, uh, will you be able to do the interview when you get back? He said, yes, I suspect the situation will still be there when I get back. He had a mixture of kind of uh, sunshine and seriousness there. All right, let's go to the next story. Let's go to yours, Linda, if we might, and go to COP. But you'll take us COP, climate and the disruption to the economy. Indeed. And I think... COP is um, about a lot of things, including coming out with concrete steps forward. And to make that case, you need a theory of change. And the theory of change tends to be um, very, you know, uh, you know, as you would expect, um, protect the planet. It's about the destruction of, you know, of the environment and all these things. But oftentimes I find actors, especially private actors as well as governments, they often need an economic case as well. You know, Actors being companies, companies, or yes, states. Okay. indeed. So um, you know, and other bodies. So if you don't properly take care of the environment and climate change, you increase the risk on the balance sheets of you know your. Um, so say you are a warehouse company, and you have warehouses by the coast. Say you are an insurance company, and you have mispriced the insurance and reinsurance contracts um, that you've issued because you've given too many to flood-prone, you know, areas and homes. And this area of climate risk doesn't get talked about nearly as much as, as I say, the other parts of the case. And the reason why it's particularly important now is we are now in a new era of interest rates being high, as we keep being told by the yes. Bank of England. Yes. It'll be high for a while. High for longer is the term that we currently are yes. hearing. And when you have a stagnant economy and high cost of borrowing, then in this part of the cycle, the risk of a financial accident, um, so, you know, Risks are higher because growth is slower. Uh, people can't pay their mortgages. All the things that we're familiar with puts more stress on the balance sheets of companies that rely on households as clients and all these things. So if you take it all together, this is a time when you expect companies to fail. We see that in the figures. But the climate risk part doesn't get tied into you know, this this part of the cycle. And I think if they were to do that, it may would it may well strengthen the economic case that you should be taking care of um, the environment and how you should be the and the concrete ways in which that could manifest. Okay, can you just explain a couple of things? What's your definition of a financial accident? Is that a company going bust or a country getting into a debt spiral? What what do you mean by a financial accident? Um, so I'm being deliberately vague, which, of course, as a good editor, James immediately picks up because <laughs> I wrote a book called The Great Crashes. And there are some who would argue that what I just said about climate risk could be a systemic crisis. A systemic crisis would be something that brings down the banks. 
I don't think it's that severe at the moment if we can get in front of it. So a financial accident would be something like, um, you know, a crisis that brings down a bank or two, a sector uh, that starts to struggle. So what often happens is, so say, uh, does you use insurance? They misprice insurance. They insure a lot of flood-prone areas. As we know, local governments don't have the money now to do, you know, fortified things. So the insurance company goes down. So the insurance company goes down. Their customers suffer. If they go down, they're probably not the only insurance company that closes down. Jobs are lost. And then any of their creditors, so, you know, insurance companies are companies. They have shareholders, yeah. they have bank loans, and then that impacts the bank. So you can have a sector crisis, and that's what I mean by financial accident. Yeah. Not one so big that, you know, we were talking about, you know, 2008 earlier. Yeah. It wouldn't necessarily be that, but a financial accident is some type of crisis which has deep impact right. on localities of people. Okay, so a financial bump is, let's say, a company going bust. A financial accident is a set of companies in a sector going bust, but not necessarily causing an entire economic crisis. And a financial crisis knocks into the whole economy and probably the global system. I think we just came up with a new taxonomy that Fine. makes sense, a financial so, bump. So do you think, do you think Jeevan, given you're headed there, do you take Linda's point that basically companies are not yet really pricing in climate risk? And as a, resu as a result of that, we may get some blow-ups. So I think there are different uh, lenses with which to view the climate crisis. And I think risk is an interesting one. I think that the problem that I have with risk as a way of viewing this is that I think that people and companies don't always respond in a kind of linear or rational way to risk. And I'll give you a concrete example, which is the fastest growing city in the United States is dot, 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 Phoenix, Arizona, hmm. also the hottest. So does this make sense? There are lots of questions this raises. The other point about coastal properties is coastal properties seem to be increasing in value. A lot of people want to live in Florida. Um, Even so, though they're the most prone to rising tides. Rising tides, storms, all sorts of climate effects. So there are a couple of questions this raises. One of them is, do people expect to get rescued by the government? Is that what I think is going to happen? Do people think, I'm going to flip my house in four years? Do people think, I'm going to be dead in three years? You know, what, what, you know there are lots of different calculations that are going, going on here. Um, I think that's why I kind of find risk a really problematic way of kind of slicing this story. I think we've had people talking for a long time about the idea of, the, of risk being kind of loaded up into the system for climate reasons. And at some point, there's going to be, Linda will correct me if I'm wrong, a Minsky moment. Is, is that the phrase? When there's a, when yes, there's a massive Minsky, correction. He passed right. away before the Minsky moment of 2008. Right. So remember, if you have a brilliant idea and you don't see it through in your lifetime, <laughs> there's still hope. You may be this validated. This is the Confederacy of Dunces thing, isn't it? That guy <laughs> yeah. never discovered his book became such a big seller. But for those of us who don't... So no maybe, Minsky personally. What is a Minsky moment? A Minsky moment is, is a sudden correction. It sounds like a lovely chocolate. It, what, what is it? It's a buildup of debt. And then um, once the debt builds up to a certain point, there's like a tipping point. It's probably the easiest way to think about and, it. And a tipping point as in things then crack. Yeah, and then the whole yeah. thing crashes. And Minsky moment was 2008 where you thought, you know what, Northern Rock, okay, that's just um, one small lender. And then you realize, oh, hang on, that's telling you something about the wholesale money market. Everyone's got too Where much they're debt. getting, yeah, everyone's got too much debt. And then when uh, Lehman Brothers, again, you know, do we rescue Lehman Brothers? The U.S. government says, do we not? And the Minsky moment happened. And this, and this might apply to lots of different sectors. So you, it might be that we say, okay, well, next month we're abandoning Florida, or you know, Exxon was the most valuable stock. 
now it's nothing. Can, can I say, Linda, the reason I don't love your take on this story is that I think it suggests a false promise, which is that if somehow the insurance companies price risk right, then we might A, insure the economy, but also prepare for some of the impacts of climate change. And the reason that I worry about that as a way of seeing it is that I'm concerned that the way in which climate change hits countries and companies is not particularly linked or connected to those companies or those countries that are the emitters, i.e. the whole thing is asymmetrical. And so if you think to yourself, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to get the people who are going to bear the burden to pay the price. That may not be fair. Uh I think that's. I think it's really interesting that UAE is the host. I think there's there's an argument that is essential for the petrostates to be involved involved in this. That it is essential for the oil and gas companies to confront the consequences of their business models, um, and that you can see that the UAE may therefore be um, uh, the right place for this to be. I think there's a lot of doubt about whether their leadership is going to be tough enough on oil and gas exporters for obvious reasons. So whether they can really kind of grasp the sort of conflict of interest that's central to this. But I think that's what makes it an interesting, an interesting story for us. All right. Well, on that note, let's, let's park COP, Risk and Henry Kissinger, take a beat, and then we're going to come to the related story of the social media magnet that is Elon Musk. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. UK business leaders are quietly confident that better times are coming. More than half of those who responded to the recent EY CEO Outlook survey believe their profitability would increase in 2024. As businesses look to the future, transformation is clearly front and centre on the 2024 CEO agenda, with the vast majority of leaders planning to maintain or accelerate their transformational change in 2024. With 76% of CEOs in agreement that AI will deliver transformative efficiency benefits to their organisation, how can AI be put to use to enhance innovation efforts? Find out how integrating AI into your business could minimise the negative impacts on the workforce, boost productivity and improve overall employee experience by reading the full report at ey.com. So Jess, what's yours? 
My story is Elon Musk making it pretty clear what he thinks about advertisers who have walked away from his platform X, formerly known as Twitter, in the past couple of weeks. Musk did an interview on stage at a summit in New York on Wednesday night. It, it was put to him that a lot of the advertisers had left because his site, A, had been accused of placing adverts next to neo-Nazi content, and B, Musk had also not helped the situation because he had replied to a tweet that was promoting an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory and hadn't taken it down, hadn't properly apologised, and he was also being accused of of being anti-Semitic. And since then, a lot of advertisers have fled the platform, around 200 firms including Apple, Disney, Paramount, Warner Brothers, Sky, European Union, have all suspended advertising as a result of this. And Musk said that if they, that essentially he said, don't advertise. And then you could tell the interviewer was, what, what do you mean don't advertise? And he just said, go fuck yourselves. And I've checked, I can swear on this and I apologise <laughs> if my mum's listening. But, the, but that was what he said. And then there was a pause again and he said it again, slowly. And he called out um, Bob Iger. We think he said hi, Bob, and he, we think that meant Bob Iger, the the head of Disney, who was one of the firms that have um, pulled advertising. He doesn't care anymore. I think the statement's pretty self-explanatory. Exactly. But there's an interesting thing. So, do you think that he is in effect throwing in the towel on Twitter? By the way, I've by the way, a new editor's note: we are going to refer to X as Twitter. Ooh, controversial. Partly because it's just fun. And then he might call us up and tell us the same. (laughs) That would be a great call, actually. (laughs) Oh, that's right. By the way, I should do the plug, which is to say, if you have views on the stories on Newsmeeting, do email us at newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. And if Elon Musk, (laughs) you want to tell us where we can go, uh, uh, call in too. But, But seriously, there is this question, which is whether or not X is going down the tubes Mm -hmm. and he's going to use this or try and exploit the advertising boycott to say it was essentially the liberal lefties in the media that throttled free speech. I'm not sure about throttling free speech, but he did see, and this in a way is, is more interesting, is what he said later in the interview, which is that he's, um, when he was asked about, you know, there is an economic case for these advertisers before it went private, about 90% of Twitter's advertising re- or revenue came from advertising. Linda Yaccarina, the CEO, was hired to try and bring advertisers back because this advertising exodus is not a new thing for Musk and Twitter. It's been happening ever since he bought the platform. And he said, let the chips fall where they may. He said he acknowledged that if that the advertiser boycott could kill the company. And he made it pretty clear that he wouldn't be using any of his personal wealth. And he is the world's richest man, so he could keep this platform going. He said if if X, I've got a, if I'm quoting him, I'm, I'll say X. He said, if X fails because of an advertising boycott, it fails because of an advertising boycott. And the public will blame, he, he, he said, the public will blame the advertisers, in his opinion, more than they will blame him. Stephen, what do you think? I don't know. I think it's really hard to, um, to impute motives uh, to people and to know, to know to what extent he's sort of maniac or sage. And, well, I, I said at the beginning, no semicolons, right? I'm, 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 I'm semicolon here. Maniac, sage. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Sinks Twitter, yeah. brackets X. I, I mean, I think, you know, Musk is an, an extraordinary businessman because he's built a company that I think is kind of pioneering what companies should do on climate, which is you make a superior product and you remove demand for fossil fuels and you do the cut through through luxury. Tesla's extraordinary. Uh, and he's also destroying another business. Yes. So, yeah, go for it. Yeah, the interviewer did I, I pull up on that. He kind of said, let chips fall is not your attitude. 
to yeah. most of your companies. It is very specific. It is very targeted. I, there's always a temptation, isn't there, as a journalist to sort of see patterns where they aren't, to sort of say there's this brilliant kind of marketing plan where he sort of blows Twitter up and then he says, well, buy a Tesla if you support free speech. I just, I'm not sure that it's as joined up as but, that. But I don't think that. I think if you go back, I don't know whether you've read the biography of Elon Musk, the Walter Isaacson one, he had this conceit which was that Twitter, now X, would become this marketplace, not just for ideas, but for commerce too. And I wonder to myself whether or not this is one of those moments where we're having a big bonfire over here mm. about rights and freedoms, while on the other side, someone's saying, actually, Elon, we've got a problem. Your business strategy doesn't work. There is no crossover of freedom of speech and a marketplace of commerce. Yeah, no, I think that is spot on. So um, the story of Elon Musk is that um, he'd always wanted something like what you see um, in China, which is WeChat, So, um, which is all those things. And he actually, um, he has a sentimental attachment to X, X.com. He actually bought it back. He owned it as a, at one point, started a company, sold it, and then brought it back. And so I think his vision for it is that he wanted it to be just like, as I said, Tencent's WeChat, where you chat, your social media, your e-commerce, your lots and lots of things. You even a pay, you even, you know, you're basically your PayPal as well, all wrapped up into one. I think that was always his, um, you know, his ultimate ambition for, for X. But I was just going to say, I have recently joined uh, Blue Sky. Yes, so have I. What do you think? I think it looks just like the old Twitter. Um, of course, it's being founded by the old Twitter founder. Yeah, Jack Dorsey. <laughs> it's Jack Dorsey's thing, isn't it? It yeah. is, yeah. But it's and invite only. It's, I it's still invite only, invite. invite. Oh, we James can... and I could both give you an invite. Oh, can we? <laughs> I think so. Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not being special no enough so far. <laughs> I'm so useless on social media. I'm just showing off here that I'm even on it. I just want You've people to know. You've never used it, have you? Yeah. <laughs> I was like my dabbling with vegetarianism. I told everyone before I actually became a vegetarian and then realized I was rubbish at it. Let's wind up. Linda, you can't choose your own story to lead. So between uh, Kissinger and Musk, what would you choose to lead the news on? So I would lead with Kissinger because um, I'm uh, heartened by the fact that you can have influence after the age of 55. <laughs> Jeevan. Um I think uh, I'm obviously going to be at COP next week. Um, I'm going to be reporting on it. I feel like it's like a bottle of ketchup where the good stuff comes out at the end. So I think this isn't the moment to pitch it. <laughs> I, I would lead with uh, Musk and I would torture him with commas and semicolons. <laughs> Jess? I think I would, lead, I would lead on Kissinger this week. You mark the moment. Interesting. It's hard to think of a life in politics or government bigger or more important than Henry Kissinger's, but I've got a slight reluctance to lead on the death of a man who's 100 years old. People at that age do die. So my running order, and forgive me, Linda, because it's very good of you to come in, but I'm going to run your story on risk third, because although it's very important, it's one of those where halfway through the second part, I'm thinking... Okay, that's important, but I'm not sure I need to know about it right now. Kissinger runs second, and I lead on Musk because I do think that we are witnessing two very important things, potentially the implosion of a big social media platform. But whether it's that or not, it's the further polarization of an argument between uh, uh, truth and quote-unquote freedom of speech, or as I like to think of it, the Freedom From Fact Brigade. Um, so with that, thank you very much, Linda, for joining us. It's really good to have you here. Jeevan, travel safely, and uh, we look forward to hearing what you learn in COP. Uh, Jess, 
Thank you very much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. I said at the beginning I'd explain news from the world of news feeds. Here it is. You've been listening to the news meeting, and from next Monday, the 4th of December, this feed is going to become Tortoise News. So you'll still be able to listen to the news meeting every Monday and Friday, but you're also going to get our short daily news podcast, which is called The Sensemaker. One story every day to make sense of the world. And then on Thursdays, you're going to get John Curtis, the great pollster, and Rachel Wolfe, the political analyst, together talking about the polls and politics as we head into an election year, not just in the UK or the US, but in covering half the economies of the world. It's called Trendy. Do listen in. And in short, if you already follow this show, you're going to continue to get this and a whole load more. We're going to be back with another episode of The News Meeting on Monday. For now... I'm going to leave you with the sound of Henry Kissinger. I mentioned I interviewed him back in 2016 when I was running BBC News. As it happened, I interviewed him on the day that Donald Trump was elected president. For the first time in history, we now have a global international system in the sense that every part of the world can affect the international system by its actions. There have to be some general rules of conduct by which one conducts affairs. Now, that may not be accomplished completely, but this means that the United States, which has been the linchpin of the security system of the world, cannot simply do a 180-degree turn without producing extreme dislocations. And it also means that the United States has an obligation, if it wants to be successful, to understand the history and psychology of other regions of the world, especially at a time when these regions are rising, as in the case of China, or adjusting to new realities, as in the case of Russia. And I think those principles will have to guide the consideration of policies, and I hope will be at least generally talked about when policies are discussed. Tortoise. Hello, it's Tomini from Tortoise. This podcast is sponsored by EY. The risks posed by AI range from bias in decision-making to misinformation and the misuse of personal information, all at an unprecedented scale. Nearly a quarter of UK businesses understand that the regulatory landscape is changing fast and nearly half are tracking new regulatory guidance to be responsive to emerging best practice. The EY Responsible AI Service helps organisations innovate safely, providing confidence that AI and generative AI technologies are developed and managed ethically, transparently and sustainably and that potential regulatory and reputational risks are identified and mitigated. Discover how you can create a better working world with AI by going to ey.ai. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.